There have been many uh, famous trials in my lifetime. You know, there was the impeachment of President Clinton and his subsequent trial. There's the O.J. Simpson case. There's the Trump impeachment, the first one and the second one in his subsequent trial. There's the much more recent and yet much more inconsequential Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial. Now, I, I don't know what it is about trials that we find so fascinating. Uh, it's probably the same fascination that leads to the success of reality TV in general. But you can learn something from trials. I mean, you can learn a famous quote, like, it depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. Or, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. I mean, those are things that you just remember from various trials. So, you could also learn, though, the truth about someone when they're stripped of their speech writers or script. A few of those trials were really genuinely very consequential. They had to do with the President of the United States. But no trial in history is more consequential than the one that we begin to see this morning. So no matter who you sided with in the OJ case or, or who you sided in Amber Heard and the Johnny Depp case, your, your life wasn't affected very much by those. And, and even in the case of these trials that related to the president, I mean, our lives did go on after that. But that is not the case. With this trial. Who you side with in this trial is a matter of eternal life and eternal death. So with something that important, we're just going to jump right into it. The most important trial begins here in Matthew 26 and verse 57. And it's kind of hard for us to parse the exact nature of this trial. Uh, these legal proceedings that are happening so many years ago. The Sanhedrin who's carrying this out, they did have some authority to rule on a number of things under this Roman occupation, this Roman authority. But they could not rule on capital offenses. The, the, Romans, the Roman leaders, they did not allow their conquered subjects to carry out the death penalty. So they held on to that. And these Jewish leaders, as they tried Jesus then, this is really just a provisional trial. This is, you could, you could consider it a preliminary hearing in order to figure out whether they have the evidence they need so that they can go to the Roman court where they can have Jesus condemned to death, which is their goal. So that, what we're going to see in these verses are, are three facets to this preliminary trial. We're going to see the courtroom, the confession, and the crime. But again, as we do that, you need to keep in mind that you're not just watching some event in history. I mean, it is that. It is historic. But it's not like this is true crime documentaries or this is like courtroom TV. This is something that is very consequential for everyone in this room. What we're going to see in this passage are two sides. There are two sides to this case. Everyone is either on one side or the other. There's no in-between. And again, whose side you're on is a matter of eternal life and eternal death. Let's take a look at the first facet here of this preliminary hearing. And it's the courtroom. So what we see, we see this courtroom in verses 57 to 61. And what you see here is that the cards are stacked against Jesus. So this group 
from the Sanhedrin that arrested Jesus in Gethsemane. They brought him to Caiaphas' courtyard. And first time, we, we've, we've already heard about this. The last time we heard about Caiaphas' courtyard was at the beginning of this chapter, 26. It was when this same group was plotting to kill Jesus. That's where they were. So now they've been able to arrest Jesus. They have him right where they want him. They were able to arrest him in private. No, no mob, no crowd, no craziness. And they brought him here to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, archaeologists have discovered and excavated a, a very large mansion in this area. Where, in an area where they believed priests lived, according to some earliest documentation. And uh, the, this home that they discovered, that they begin to ex excavate, it rivaled the wealthiest homes in places like Pompeii and Herculaneum. If you're familiar with that, I was not. But uh, also Ephesus. These other cities have these areas with demonstrations of, of enormous wealth. And this mansion, it also illustrates that same wealth. Michael Wilkins says of this that this palace, really, was laid out with a large central paved courtyard. Reaching through a secluded gateway and forecourt. Around the courtyard was a series of living quarters, some with second floors, indicating that more than one family occupied the quarters. So it is quite possible that Annas, Caiaphas' father-in-law and former high priest, lived there too. Along with probably other past and maybe even potential future high priests. This is the way that Rome worked. They were going to depose Caiaphas after a while and pick somebody else. So it is all in all likelihood these are... This is where the chief priests lived. So that's why Matthew doesn't have to mention them when he mentions the rest of the Sanhedrin. There were two other parts to it, the scribes and the elders. So you can imagine, this is a large area. And now it's full of the highest court, members of the highest court for the Jewish people. Now, this is technically a meeting off the books. But it is... In another sense, still official. Now, Peter in this story, he goes back and forth in terms of cowardice and courage. And at this point, he's kind of started to teeter closer to courage. It was in all likelihood, Peter is sprinting away from Jesus. And, and he looks around after a while and realizes nobody is chasing him. Nobody cares about the disciples. And so at that point, he probably said, okay, well, I'm going to go check out and see what, what's happened. And he circled back. And John points out in his gospel that Peter wasn't the only one to do this. In fact, John is the one who gets him in to the courtyard. He has some type of a, of a connection to the high priest. But Peter isn't planning on rescuing Jesus here. That's not what he's come for. It says, Matthew says, he just wanted to see the end. He wants to see what the outcome is going to be. Verse 59 then gives a little flashback, explaining the Sanhedrin, they've been scrambling to try to find witnesses. And it probably got even worse as soon as Judas stepped up and said, hey, I'll help you out. Then, th then they were really scrambling to try to find witnesses against Jesus. And look at the, the nature of their inquiry here, who they're looking for. Matthew says that they're looking for false testimony against Jesus. What we shouldn't do is take that to think, they're just looking to make up stories. They could do that. They don't need to find witnesses just to make up a story. Truth is, they think Jesus is guilty. Matthew, however, knows Jesus is innocent. So the only witness to a crime 
that Jesus has committed that they could come up with would be false by definition. So Matthew's just telling us like it is. That's what they're looking for. They're not going to find an actual testimony of any crime. They're just going to find false testimony against Jesus. And, And look at their goal. From the start, this is what they're looking for. They're looking for witnesses that they might put him to death. This, this group is the equivalent of the U.S. Supreme Court. So just imagine that the Supreme Court is trying, actively trying to drum up evidence to put you to death. It's an understatement to say that the cards are stacked against Jesus. The prosecuting attorneys judge himself. Even the jury, they're all out looking for evidence to put you away. He doesn't even have a defense attorney. There's nobody in his corner. This isn't innocent till proven guilty. It's guilty until we can figure out how to prove that you're guilty. But verse 60 says they couldn't find anyone, even though many false witnesses came forward. And this is where you can see that, that they're deluded. They're not just crooked. It's not that they're so underhanded that they're willing to just come up with something false. They're looking for credible evidence. They really do believe Jesus is guilty. Yeah, they, they know what Jesus can do. They even know that he, he's come from God. But they do not believe that he's the Messiah. And they still believe he's guilty. Now, that seems crazy to us. We'd say, hey, if somebody's coming from God, well, they're not going not to do anything wrong. But that actually misunderstands what the Old Testament teaches about people who come from God. They're still fallible people. There are plenty of stories in the Old Testament of prophets who've gone rogue. So from this group's understanding, this this person must have just gone rogue. Jesus must have just gone rogue. He cannot be correct because he's not doing what we think he should do. So he's guilty. Now, what has got them thinking that way? Is this just a simple misunderstanding? It's innocent? No. John says that they loved darkness rather than light. Sure, they they have rationalized their sinfulness. They they are self-deceived. And that's what, why, one of the reasons at least, that you should recognize that sincerity is no determiner of truth. A person can be simultaneously sincere and sinful. In fact, very sinful. And that's what you see in this text. So here at the last minute, they find what they're looking for. Two credible witnesses came forward. And here's their accusation. In verse 61, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, we know from John, Jesus did say something similar to this, but very different. Earlier in the book of John, in chapter 2 of John, the very beginning, Jesus comes into the temple just as he does in Matthew at the end of his ministry. And he does the same thing there. He, He clears the temple. And the people, the Jewish people there want to know, They want him to give a sign to demonstrate that he has the authority to do this. And Jesus responds, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. It's clear from the context they really believe that Jesus is talking about the temple there in Jerusalem. But John's very clear. That is not what Jesus was saying. He was referring to the temple of his body. He's a divine temple. And he was saying that here's your sign that I have this authority. When you kill me, I will raise on the third day. Now, if John's talking about an event that occurs at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, 
so that he, he's done this twice? If that's the case, then this is three years prior. And you can understand that the people that are giving this testimony, they may really believe what they're saying. They think that they're honestly giving you exactly what Jesus told them. They're wrong, but they think, at least they could think that they're telling the truth. So they end up, though, misrepresenting Jesus, suggesting that he claimed he could potentially destroy this temple. That's not what he said. Now, why would the Sanhedrin be satisfied with this? Why is this incriminating? Well, even the Romans believed that desecrating a sacred place was very serious. In fact, I heard just this week from, uh, on a podcast by Michael Haken that this is one of the hallmarks of Rome, that they would respect the deities of the places they conquered. And D.A. Carson, he points out that the ancients in general just believed that the desecration of a sacred place was a capital offense. It was worthy of death. So you got to remember, the Jewish leaders here believe Jesus is guilty of a religious crime according to their, their laws in the Bible. But Rome doesn't care about that. So they need something that Rome is going to care about, and they can work with this. So this is the courtroom scene. This is where Jesus is now experiencing this trial, this preliminary trial. So the, the cards are stacked against him. Everyone in the courtroom believes he's guilty from the start. And they finally feel like they've got their smoking gun. But the chief priest wants more. Caiaphas wants a confession from Jesus. And that's what we see in this next facet to this hearing. They get a confession out of him. The truth comes out in verses 62 through 64. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced uh, being in the middle of a crowd that hates you. Just last night, my Hoosiers went to Mackey Arena, the home of our arch rivals, and it was loud. You, 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 they couldn't calm the, the TV down, and I mean, you could hear how loud the crowd was, and it was hostile. So imagine the team, they're sitting there, and, and that crowd is all against you. That's intimidating. I mean, that's incredibly intimidating. That's just a kid's game. I mean, I have to keep telling myself that, but that, that's the truth. It's basketball, as intense as it can be, and as thrilling it can be to sweep your rivals this year, as intense and, and even threatening as you could feel in an arena like that, it's not a life or death situation. Others have faced much greater danger from a mob that wanted to kill them. I can't even imagine what it would have been like to be an African-American in the middle of a lynch mob. You know, for people to hate you for no reason and hate you to such a degree that they want to kill you, what that would feel like. That is what Jesus is facing here. So how would you respond under those conditions? Well, notice how Jesus responds. Really, the scene is... It's more reminiscent of a, an interrogation in a police station. I mean, that's what it reminds me of. But the, the Sanhedrin is treating it like a trial. And so in a trial in the Old Testament, a judge would stand up to give their verdict. And that's what it kind of seems like is about to happen, and yet the, the high priest pivots. And he kind of takes the light and shines it in Jesus' face, so to speak. And he, 
ask the question. I think the CSB renders the question the best from the Greek. It says, don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? Caiaphas is trying to get Jesus to speak, to incriminate himself. He's trying to get him to talk, to confess. Verse 63 says, Jesus remained silent. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opens not his mouth. That's how Isaiah 53, 7 describes this very scene hundreds of years before it arrived. But Jesus' silence only makes the high priest want to try harder. So he puts Jesus under oath to force him to admit his identity. He says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us who you are, if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now back in chapter 16, Jesus had posed a similar question to his disciples. And you remember what Peter said. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You remember how Jesus responded? He said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is never seen. You're right, Peter. I really am the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you didn't just come up with that. My Father revealed this truth about me to you. So what you would expect for Jesus to say at this point is, yes, I am. And there is a sense in which what Jesus says is that affirmation. That's why Mark can translate Jesus' words here to say simply, I am, in response. But his actual words are a little more nuanced than that. The ESV translates his response, you have said so. Others translate it, you have said it. Some add yourself to the text, and they say, you have said it yourself. The wording in Greek, it sounds evasive. It sounds like he's not quite making a clear affirmation. It's almost like he's saying, says you. But that's not really what he's saying. Though it would fit the but, that that conjunction that follows. So what do, what do we think is going on here? What I, I think the best way to make sense of this is to think about a situation where someone asks you about a subject that you understand and you know they don't. And they ask you to affirm something, but you can tell that when you say yes, they're, they're going to be confused. And so your, your yes comes out a little bit more hesitant. You say, uh, yes, but... And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's given a qualified yes. I think Craig Blomberg uh, translates it the best. He says, that is your way of putting it. And then Jesus goes on to tell him how he would put it. So Jesus knew that the terms like Messiah, they're politically charged. People's understanding of the Messiah was very, very political. And Son of God, as Caiaphas is using that phrase, It doesn't mean that Caiaphas is asking if he's divine. The Jewish people at the time would have understood Son of God to be a a synonym for the Messiah that they base on texts like 2 Samuel 7.14 or Psalm 2 that describe David and his descendants and the Messiah as sons of God. But their understanding of Messiah and Son of God, the way that Caiaphas imagines this, it's not the right understanding of who Jesus was and what his mission is. So the truth comes out. Jesus, he gives his good confession. He he tells them this, and this is really the climax of Matthew in terms of the revelation of who Jesus is to his people. 
He's saying that that's how you would describe my identity, Caiaphas, but here's how I'd put it. Verse 64 says, From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is an amalgam of two Old Testament passages. Daniel 7.13 and Psalm 110 and verse 1. Jesus has already referred to himself through those texts earlier in Matthew. Back in chapter 22, the Jewish leaders are doing what they're, they're really doing here. They were trying to get Jesus to, to incrim- incriminate himself by saying the wrong thing. And so they were asking him these questions. And at the end of it, Jesus asks his own question. He says, whose son is the Messiah? And they say, well, David's, of course. And then Jesus posed this riddle via Psalm 110 and verse 1, where David refers to his own descendant as his Lord. Jesus was asking, well, how can David refer to this person as his superior when everyone knows that a descendant is inferior, that they're to honor their, their, their ancestor? And, and not only that, but he, in quoting this, this future descendant, Psalm 110 says, is going to sit at God's right hand. He's going to share God's sovereign authority. So what mere human could do that? And then in Matthew 24, just a few chapters earlier, in verse 30, Jesus had told his disciples that at his future coming, he was going to fulfill the prophecy of the Son of Man in Daniel 7. So like a divine figure, he's going to come on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So Jesus combines these two passages that I, I am sure were confusing to people in the first century. How, how this was going to play out. How could God share his power and glory with someone when Isaiah says very clearly, he's not going to share his, God does not share his glory with anyone. And Jesus doesn't explain it. He just says, it's me. And from now on, this is how you can look at me. Truth comes out. I, he's, Jesus is saying, I'm the son of man who after my crucifixion and resurrection, I'm going to ascend to heaven and I'm going to sit at the right hand of power. But I won't stay there. He's going to come with the clouds of heaven to the ancient of days, but he's saying, I'm going to come back on the clouds of heaven and I'm going to take up the reign that Daniel 7 went on to talk about. I'm going to rule everything. Saying, Caiaphas, you know, you think you're the judge right now, but you have the true judge in the dock. You have no idea. So think about how intimidating this situation was. Everybody is against you. This is a massive crowd, not a massive crowd. It's a very large crowd. And they're all intent on killing Jesus. They're, they're tying the rope to the tree during the trial. So you could, in that context, you could think that Jesus was intimidated. That's why he was silent. But it's clear from his confession here that that's not the case. So why was he silent? Why did he hesitate before he spoke up? Leon Morris describes it well. He describes him as having fought his battle in Gethsemane. He already fought that battle. It was there that he had already come to terms with the fact that his heavenly father, it was his will for Jesus to drink this cup of wrath for others. 
So why fight now? I mean, why battle against this twisted court who'd already come to their verdict? They already knew what they were going to rule. What could he do to change their minds? There was no point to saying anything. And so he stood in what Donald Hagner describes as a sovereign silence. He was entrusting himself to the one who is truly in charge. So when they, they did require a testimony from him, that's when the truth could come out. And he gave his good confession. So at this point, we hear the third and final facet of this hearing, the crime. So verses 65 through 68 describe the crime. But it's not what you think. They're going to say the crime is blasphemy. But that's not the real crime here. The crime is the travesty of justice that we're observing. So there are Jewish writings called the Mishnah that come at the either the end of the 2nd century or the beginning of the 3rd century. And some think that they reach back in terms of their belief and procedures to the 1st century. And they, they could. Some of, some of these ideas could reach that far. We can't be sure, though. Some of the, one procedure that's mentioned in this Jew, these Jewish writings is that the high priest was supposed to tear his robes at a trial that had to do with blasphemy. It was the same thing you see in the Old Testament. When somebody either is grieving, they tear their robes, or if they're responding in horror to what somebody says, they tear their robes. Paul, in Acts 14, 14, he and Barnabas, the, the people in Lystra, they, they refer to him as these false gods, Zeus and Hermes. And when they hear that, they tear their robes in horror. Don't say that. And so that's what verse 65 says. That's what the high priest is doing at this juncture. He is tearing his robes. Basically, Caiaphas is calling for a decision. He's heard enough. He believed Jesus had just incriminated himself. He had just publicly blasphemed God. That's what he believes. And Leviticus is very clear. God says there that you, that, that blasphemy is a capital offense, that it is worthy of death. So how is this blasphemy? We can't be sure exactly what Caiaphas was thinking. Some think that all Jesus would have needed to do was to admit that he was the Messiah. Because they were convinced he was not. And so by Jesus saying that he was the Messiah, he would be falsely misrepresenting God. He would be slandering God. Others think that the clincher is the way that Jesus describes the Messiah. He's, he is describing something beyond what they understood the Messiah to be. So Jesus viewed his own sonship differently than just being David's descendant and just having the right to rule. Jesus has already showed that in Gethsemane when he prays, my father. And back in chapter 11, he describes this exclusive relationship, this unique relationship that he has with the father. And that's what he's describing here. He's just described the Messiah as someone who's going to share his father's rule. Sitting at his right hand, he's going to come in this divine fashion on heavenly clouds. To rule everyone as the son of man. So that sounds like someone who can't merely be human. It sounds like there's a claim to equality with God. The right to share in the father's power and glory. And were it not true, it most certainly would be blasphemous. But that's not the real crime. Jesus is telling the truth. Real crime is this, this travesty of justice. The, the judge calls on a jury for the decision, but they already had their decision. 
They're all in cahoots. They had the verdict from the start. They were trying to find evidence because they believed he deserved death. So when they say here he deserves death, they're only saying what they already believed from the start. They take this loving, perfectly innocent man who had just told them the truth. And they treat him shamefully. They spit in his face and struck him and slapped him. This is their king. This is the Lord of heaven and earth. This is the lamb who sacrificially takes away the sin of the world. This is the one who one day they're going to face. The king that they're going to have to bend their knee to. And they're saying, you're not my king. And they disrespect him. By spitting on him, by slapping him as a public show of disrespect. Jesus talked about in chapter 5. And Jesus practices what he taught there. He turns the other cheek. And then they basically mock his, his years of ministry where he demonstrated this power. They mock it by blindfolding him, as Luke says, and punching him and saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? So, I mean, just imagine what they're doing. They're striking on the face the creator, the one who made everything around them. And again, this is the person they're going to stand before one day. And they have no idea. They have no idea what they're doing. How wrong it is. They have no idea how gracious Jesus is being by letting them continue. So make no mistake, this is a travesty of justice. This is the crime. It's not a misunderstanding. And this is how Jesus responds to it. So how, how should we respond in light of this? Well, first of all, with faith. When Jesus gives his good confession, we should respond by confessing that truth too. You should confess that Jesus is Lord, that he's the son of man. That even though he will be crucified, he's going to be raised. And he's going to ascend and he's going to sit at the right hand of the father. You need to believe that this high king of heaven gave up his life to save you, to rescue you, that Jesus drank this cup of wrath so that no one who believes in him would have to drink that cup in hell so that we could be forgiven, reconciled to God. So don't respond like Caiaphas. Don't respond like the Sanhedrin. Don't reject Jesus. Don't, don't even think that you're in a position of power now that you can put Jesus on trial. And determine for yourself who he is. You're not in that place. Jesus is never going to be tried again. He's not in the dock. He's the judge. But he came to rescue. He came to rescue sinners from his own righteous judgment. By taking on the punishment they deserve. In this text, you can see his love. You need to believe in him. Put your trust in him. And show that you believe by listening to him. By turning from the way that you lived your life before Jesus. Where you were in charge of yourself. And submitting to him. Listening to him. 
What does that look like? Well, it looks like publicly confessing Jesus is your Lord. He is your Savior. And by joining us through baptism. Now, baptism doesn't save you. But it is how you show others publicly that you believe in Jesus. It's what Jesus told us as a church to do. This is what he told us to do. To baptize those who believe. So through baptism what we're doing is we're saying yes your faith in Jesus is right. We believe it too. And what we want to do is we want to come alongside you. We want to stand with you and encourage you to keep enduring in that faith all the way to the end. And through baptism, you would be going public with your faith in Jesus. You would be publicly admitting to everyone that you believe Jesus is your Lord and Savior. And that you want to join with his people and serve him together. That's the first way to respond. With faith and repentance and then in obedience to Jesus, joining us through baptism. The second response I see when we look at this text is don't simply be angry at the Jewish leaders. As though they're the only Christ killers. You know, there are people who have misrepresented this story and, and come up with seeing it as a reason to not like Jewish people. And that's about the dumbest response to this passage that you can have. Hello. Jesus is Jewish. And I said is. Jesus is still Jewish. I mean, this story should not encourage anti-Semitism out of love for your Jewish Messiah. That's all kinds of wrongheaded. If you want to blame someone for Christ's death, you can start with me. I'm a sinner. You know, I am the reason why Jesus remained silent. I'm the reason Jesus didn't call down 12 legions of angels to stop this whole sham. I'm not alone though, right? Every single one of us who believe in Jesus, we're the Christ killers. That's how we need to look at this. Not to get angry at anyone but ourselves over our sin. A third response should be to recognize the call of every believer. Remember what Jesus said after Peter's confession in Matthew 16, 24. And now what he says really should start to come into focus. As you're reading Matthew, you realize this is what Jesus was talking about. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Jesus is on the way to the cross, and he told us to follow him. Here's how Peter put it in his first letter. In 1 Peter 2.21, he said, For to this you've been called, to suffering, he's saying, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Paul strengthened the believers in Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. He told them in, in Acts 14.22, Through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of heaven. Not you can, you might, possibly. You must enter the kingdom through many persecutions. And Jesus said in John 15, 20, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. This is the path. 
What we're observing in Jesus is the path. It's the calling. This is what he said we need to face. We follow Jesus down this tight, constricting path to eternal life. If it's not the path you want, if you'd rather have an easier life, if you'd rather that society accepts you, Rather, a situation where no one slanders you or insults your integrity or your intelligence. If you'd rather not suffer rejection, there is another path that you can be on. It's a broad path. But the only place it leads to is utter ruin in the end. You can try to hang on to your life now. You can try to preserve your life now. Jesus says in the end you will lose it. So, we need to understand that this is the path Jesus called us to. It's a tough path. It's a tough calling. But it is worth it. So because of Jesus' path, you need to understand, you need to expect the cards to be stacked against you. You need to expect a world that insults you and persecutes you, and utters all kinds of evil against you falsely because you're listening to Jesus. But don't, don't let that stop you from holding on to your confession, as Hebrews puts it. In the face of this opposition, hold on to what you believe about Jesus. It's true. In the face of insults, in the face of rejection, Keep following Jesus' steps. And, and Peter describes them this way. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. You know, it's very easy for people to present a different story. To tell people who say they want to be Christians, it's going to be easier if you become a Christian. You know, and, and I would say, even in some cases, you could, you could describe it as coming from good intentions. They're actually horribly wrong. But you could understand that this is an individual who wants people to know Jesus and be saved. And so they try to give the gospel the best look they, they can. Because they think that, they, they understand faith to be simply a human endeavor. And so they think, well, we need to help encourage this in somebody. So they don't want to say what Jesus says or what his apostles say, because that's a little tough. And so they say things like, well, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He doesn't say pick up your cross and follow Jesus. He says, look, God has good things for you. Now, is it true that God has good things for us? Yeah. But is it horribly misrepresenting the truth of the gospel? Absolutely. We ought not present a gospel that way. It's manipulation. Jesus never did it. His apostles never did it. We should never do it. Because all we're trying to do in that moment is give people all the feels. You know, Give them good feelings. That they feel secure. That they feel like this is a good thing. You know, In the end, it doesn't matter how we feel. What matters is the truth. If Jesus is confessing the truth here. It doesn't matter what happens to us. It doesn't matter what we face in following him. It's still in everyone's best interest 
to listen to him, to follow him, to believe in him. So from that standpoint, we should want to know the truth. I mean, it's much better to know the truth going into it than to have it misrepresented to you, to think everything's going to be peachy, and, and actually to cover over what Jesus says is the truth. This is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Now, it isn't what I call good news, that part. I mean, good news is that Jesus is the king who saves us. That's the good news. But I wouldn't call it good news to know that I have to follow in his footsteps, but it's the truth. We need to follow even closer than Peter does in this story. We need to be willing to suffer as he did. And yet Jesus does have good news for us in that. Jesus promised that he would never leave us. That even though he's walked this path already, that he was going to walk with everyone who trusts in him. That as we put one foot in front of the others, we put one foot in his footprint after the other, he is with us the whole way. Even to the end of the age, he's going to be with us. We're not alone. So they can stack the deck against us. It's still worth it to keep going. It's worth it to be rejected. It's worth it to be insulted and even dishonored. Because Jesus is going to be with us the whole time. And not only that, he's given us his Holy Spirit. You understand, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is at work in everyone who believes. He's there with us. Empowering us to follow Jesus. So hold fast to your good confession. You're saying the same thing Jesus did. He is your Lord and Savior. And by his strength, you can follow him. And it is worth it. Join me in prayer. Jesus, we are so thankful. We're thankful your sacrifice we're in awe of it and we we understand that we do not deserve what you did for us now we're like your disciples we we are so prone to abandon you we're so prone to give up we're so prone to to, to return to these these old ruts that we walked in before we knew you even past that we continue to wear in. it is not not easy in that sense for us because we we're experiencing the opposition that you face there's there's physical and, and social and and verbal persecution in our world and there is even spiritual opposition to us and there's these sinful desires in us that wage war against us and yet you have rescued us even now from their power over us. We still face them. We can still be intimidated by them. But you are victorious. You, you've conquered. And in you and by faith in you, we too can overcome. We ask for, ask for your grace. As you walk with us. We ask for your strength that you promised to give us. 
We're only asking for what you've already promised. Strength to not give in when people insult us. Not give in to the culture that says we're wrong for believing in you. Wrong for listening to what you say about right and wrong. That you would give us your courage. Not, not simply help us to be courageous, but that we would be able to stand in your courage. We would not lose heart. And that, that we, we would go into this world with the right expectations, knowing that we're following in your steps, that we're going to face the same rejection. Maybe not the same degree. Maybe not be crucified. But that we'll experience rejection, that the world is not going to love us. They're going to hate us. Whenever we demonstrate our allegiance to you, they're going to treat us like they treated you us to see that. Help us to be strengthened by your, your testimony here. You testify to yourself and who you are and testify to how we ought to respond to the same rejection, same opposition. And again, we ask for your spirit to give us the strength to do it. That by faith in you and faith that we have this spirit, we would then take steps to respond this way, not in our own strength. And Jesus, I pray that anyone here who doesn't quite really want to, to give up their control, who still wants to hold out, who's intimidated by becoming a follower in a public sense that your grace would overwhelm them. That your spirit would be at work in them. They would bend their knee now. Trust in you. And be willing to follow you. Be willing to confess you publicly. Say, you are Lord. We know that's not something we can just do in our own strength. So we ask for your spirit to enable that. Amen.